Good morning. K through third grade, you know what to do. And they're doing it. <laughs> How many people like their cars? Only one. <laughs> okay. How about your motorcycles? Yes, over there. Your trucks. Yes, yes, okay, the truck owners, proud truck owners here in southern Lancaster County. Uh, a few years ago, CNBC even had a trucker's outreach. Remember that? Transport for Christ? Yes. Well, we tend to like our vehicles here in southern Lancaster County. Um, when I was working on this sermon, though, gas was $3.60 a gallon. Diesel was four twenty-five. So I guess that's good. It only cost me $90 to fill my truck the other day instead of a mortgage. <laughs> it costs a lot of money to power our vehicles, doesn't it, these days? And um, vehicles are not the only thing that we need power for, though. We need the power to live the Christian life, to have victory over sin and death. And just as many of us wish that gas and diesel was cheaper, long to experience and taste that resurrection power of Jesus Christ. We longed for a revival that could empower us, our church, our area, our nation. We want that fuel that can lead to change. In many ways, we are just like the disciples in Mark chapter 9. Um, in this story in the Bible, Jesus is on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And as they are experiencing the transfiguration, the other disciples are struggling. They're down at the foot of the mountain. The scribes are arguing with them. There's chaos going on. And Jesus kind of walks right into the middle of this chaos. And he says, you know, what's everyone arguing about? And, and basically, the disciples had tried to heal a young boy. They couldn't do it, and fights broke out. Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, how, I lo how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought the boy to him. Jesus looks at him, asks, how long has this been happening? The father tells him. Then the father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And then Jesus goes on to heal that young man, that, that boy. And later on, the disciples ask him, why couldn't we do anything? What was wrong? And Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so... We see here a picture of a very powerful Jesus Christ, but very powerless disciples. 
And in some ways, they represent a powerless church, if you will. A church that's operating in the energy of the flesh, low on fuel, a gas tank almost empty. And so this brings us to the question at CNBC, how much do we rely upon the tools of men versus the tools of God? Do we rely too much upon publicity and organization, upon technology, upon committees? Do we rely too much upon our own human creativity and ingenuity? Are we trusting more upon human energy, human talents, human ways of thinking than upon the Holy Spirit? I know that our church longs to make a difference to grow an influence in our community and around the world. I've been in many meetings where we've planned and talked about revival, things that we've hoped for, planned for. Revival, an extraordinary movement of God that produces an extraordinary result. An extraordinary movement of God that produces extraordinary results. And we want to see that. We want to experience that. We want to experience the power of God and his resurrection. It's been said that revival's like a fire. A spark ignites, then the flame burns hotly, and lives change. Now, I love to camp. And one of the things that I love to do when we're camping is have a good campfire. And I'll tell you, it's much easier to start a fire under the right conditions than under the wrong ones. Wet wood, no kindling, makes it very tough to start a fire. And even if you do, it's a lot of smoke, not much flame. The same can be said of revival. When certain conditions exist, it's much easier for revival to happen. And so what is the fuel for revival. What is the fuel for revival? Now, there's a famous verse that many of us can quote from. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. And this is the verse that we're going to look at today. 2 Corinthians, 2 Chronicles, sorry, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, does that sound familiar? If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, just a few words about this passage before we jump into it. This is an Old Testament passage. God is talking to Solomon. This is in context with the dedication of the temple. And so we need to be careful how we apply this verse. We are not Israel. We are the church. We are not dedicating a temple, although we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I know that there's people that take this verse out of context and use it as a promise that God will restore America. That's not how we're using it today. That's not how we're looking at it. We're looking at this passage as God dealing with his people, with us as Christians. Without understanding, 
What is the fuel that could ignite revival in the church? And I believe this passage shows four things that could help to fuel revival. Prayer, repentance, seeking God, and humility. Prayer, repentance, seeking God, and humility. If we are going to have real revival, then we have got to pray. We have got to pray. Jesus said, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Have we put this to the test? Now, the testimonies of the power of prayer are endless. But unfortunately, so are the excuses for not doing it. Now, we're a people of the book. And I want to take a look at some of the greatest stories on prayer in this book this morning. How about Abraham? Abraham is called a friend of God. How would we like to be called a friend of God? How does one get to be called a friend of God? You spend time with God, just like we'd spend time with our friends. And Abraham spent a lot of time with God, a lot of alone time. This is how good a friend Abraham was. In the book of Genesis, chapter 18, we read about a story, an amazing story of God interacting with his friend Abraham. God reveals that he's going to go down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But here's what I find really amazing. God asks if he should hide from Abraham what he is going to do. And the answer is no. God's not going to destroy the cities until he talks with Abraham. So God tells Abraham that he's going to destroy the two cities. And Abraham says, well, are there 50 righteous people there? God says, no. Abraham says, well, how about 45? God says, no. Maybe 30? God says, no. What about if there's 20? God says, no. Abraham goes, well, what if there's 10 righteous people? And God looked and he could not find 10 righteous people. And so he's prepared to destroy the cities. He comes down to Sodom and Gomorrah. He gets Lot out of there. But I think the fascinating part is the conversation God is having with a man, Abraham. And God will not do anything until he's had this conversation with Abraham. That's an incredible prayer life. That is one amazing man of prayer. But isn't that what we do with friends? We talk to them. We have conversations with them. Abraham is a friend of God. Are we? How would you like for God to say, you are faithful? 
You are faithful. You know, it's one thing for some people to say we're faithful. I mean, we can fool a lot of people. It's another thing maybe if our spouse or someone close to us says you're faithful. They're a little harder to fool. But none of us can fool God. And so for God to say that we're faithful, that's an amazing statement. And God makes that statement for Moses. Moses is faithful in all my house. So how did Moses become faithful? His prayer life. Moses is one of the greatest prayer warriors listed in the Bible. On two different occasions, he spent 40 days and 40 nights alone with God in fasting and prayer. No wonder when he came down off the mountain from being with God, his face shone and it lit up. He had to put a veil over his face. Moses is faithful. And Moses is faithful because he prays. Or how about another Old Testament man of God, Daniel? How would you like for God to send you an angel that says heaven loves you? That's what God did for Daniel. Daniel was devoted to God. Three times a day he would set his face toward Jerusalem to pray. And when his life was in jeopardy, he still prayed. One day he started to pray, and he prayed for three whole weeks. 21 days, no food passed his lips. And in Daniel 9.23, we were an angel came and said, Daniel, you're a man greatly beloved of God. God loved Daniel. This is what God calls a person of prayer, a friend, faithful, greatly loved. What about the New Testament? We have the Apostle Paul. Paul's a great example of prayer. In chapters 1 and 3 of Ephesians, his prayers are so personal, they're so powerful. In Romans 9, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears with me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That is serious intercession for others. Of course, when we think of prayer... We need to look to Jesus. God the Father said to Jesus, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus prayed. He prayed all night before he chose the 12 disciples. How long has it been since we stayed up an extra hour to pray at night? In Gethsemane, he prayed as the weight of the world's sins began to crush on him until his sweat became as drops of blood. We need today some Gethsemane Christians who will take the burden 
of this lost world upon them. Today, Jesus Christ is still engaged in prayer. He's still praying for us today. How can we expect to have the power of God if we do not spend time alone with God in prayer? So condition number one for revival is prayer. Condition number two is repentance. That is, people who are called by his name must turn from their wicked ways. To turn is to repent. And the first step of repentance is to realize that we are wicked. That we do wicked things. And the second step is to turn away from these wicked ways. The Greek word, metaneo, means to turn. So if I'm walking this way, I turn. And I walk this way. That is repentance. I like the word U-turn when we talk about repentance because that's what it is. You turn. <laughs> and I don't believe that the sins that the Bible's talking about here are just robbing a bank or committing adultery or those things that we think are way up here. Those things do not please God, obviously, but in the context of this passage of Scripture, it's the idea of turning away from anything that causes us to stumble, anything that would grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And as we pray, and as we draw closer to the Lord, we'll realize how far we are from Him. As we get closer to God, He begins to show us things that we didn't even realize were in our lives. Things that need changed. Have you ever had something in your shoe? Maybe a pebble or something? This happened to me the other week. We were at Muddy Run. Yeah, we were at Muddy Run going for a walk and I had this little pebble in my shoe. You would have thought it was a boulder. After a few steps, it became very apparent that something was not right. And you take off your shoe and you're expecting this huge thing to be in there and sometimes you can barely find it. It's just this little, little thing. The same thing goes with the sins in our life. We might think it's a very, very little thing. But it causes us not to walk with the Lord. And so we have a choice. We can either stop what we are doing and take the shoe off, which I didn't do, <laughs> or we can keep walking. And it gets worse and worse and worse. Unfortunately, many of us choose to ignore and wait. And our foot starts to hurt more and more. And the same with other sins in our life. Say it's not that big of a deal. And we just try to ignore it. And yet it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. We cannot allow even a tiny sin to remain in our lives. And we have two choices. 
make a U-turn, confess, get things right with the Lord, or delay, ignore, try to tolerate it, but soon this little sin will cause much trouble in our lives. The closer we get to God, the more those little hidden sins are going to show up. And we need to be sensitive and we need to turn from those sins. Anything that would hinder our walk with the Lord. Psalm 34, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Turn away. Make a U-turn. Then God will come close. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. James chapter 4. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Make a U-turn. There's a change that needs to happen in our life, and now is the time to turn. The third thing in our passage is to seek God. And the three passages that I just read, Psalm 34, turn away from evil, do good, seek. Or Isaiah 55, let him return to the Lord. Or James chapter 4, draw near to God. We need to seek God. God says that those who are interested in experiencing revival must Seek my face. We're not seeking his hand for what God can give us. We are seeking his face. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, He rewards those who seek him. And Jeremiah says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Anyone who has ever amounted to anything in the Old or New Testament sought God's face. Whether it was a patriarch, a prophet, a judge, nothing happened until they sought God's face. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Isaiah sought God, even when he was in captivity. We could say the same of Ezekiel, of Daniel, Jeremiah, Moses, Abraham. And then we come to the New Testament, and we have Peter. Peter was a great preacher. Later. <laughs> but he denied the Lord. He hid. If you will, he backslid. He lied. He was a failure. 
In fact, he decided to quit the ministry and go fishing. The rest of the disciples said, well, if Peter can't measure up, who are we? And they all quit and went fishing too. That didn't turn out so well, did it? That usually happens when we turn and run away from God. Jonah tried to run away. He got caught by a fish. These men go fishing, they can't catch one. Then Jesus came. You remember the miracle? They suddenly caught all these fish. They had fish for breakfast. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd love fish for breakfast. But hey, if Jesus is serving fish, it's okay. But you still had Peter. Peter the failure. But Jesus helped him make a U-turn. And he headed back to Jerusalem. And he became that great preacher. Peter said, I'm going to start doing God's will. I'm going to start seeking the Lord. And you know the rest of the story. Pentecost. He's standing there. He is so excited. In those days, it was customary when you preached to sit down. He was too excited. He stood up. <laughs> and he gave a very powerful sermon. Peter made a U-turn. He sought God, and God used him. Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Peter sought the Lord and he found him. It's never too late to turn around and to seek God. And God promises that if we seek, he will be found. Now there's one more fuel for revival and that's humility. And in the, in the passage, this comes first. But I think this is the hardest one to do. To the natural heart, it is very hard to be humble. To subordinate I, to exalt Christ. And to humble ourselves is not merely to confess our sin and failure of the past. It's to admit that presently we can't do anything either. We can't do anything to please God. And that we have to move out of the way and let God work in us. The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. This is both terrifying as well as a satisfying statement. For God to resist a man, well, that's a terrible thing. The writer of Hebrews exclaims, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yet it says that God will resist. I think we all remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, and that Pharisee stood up and he prayed, quote unquote. He did all these wonderful things. He fasted, gave tithes. But it was all I, I, I. He was proud. And his prayer never reached heaven. And yet you have a tax collector. Tax collectors were very hated people. 
Trust me, I, I worked for an agency this past year that helped people do their taxes. I know people hate the IRS <laughs> with a passion. <laughs> this man was hated. He was despised. And yet he humbled himself and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God forgave him. God can even forgive you if you work for the IRS. Think about that. So when we say we want revival, that we want to see a movement of God, we want to see this world turn right side up, it can happen, but there's a cost. A physician will pay the price to go to school for many, many years in order to become a doctor. An athlete will pay the price and go through much discipline and training in order to race. A businessman will pay the price to build a business. A musician will pay the price and spend many long hours practicing so they can master that instrument. Success comes at a cost. And revival will not just happen. There is work to be done. And we need to pay the price. Now when I preached through these four points, I did them out of order. The first one should have been humility, but I made that last. And there was a reason for that. If you take the first letter from each of our four points, it spells push. Prayer, you turn, seeking God, humility. Push. We're going to go a little old school here. This is an acrostic, and it comes from some missionaries in, in Pakistan who labor under pressure and persecution. But PUSH stands for pray until something happens. Pray until something happens. We're focused on revival and the fuel for revival this morning, but all the points that we made this morning can apply to us personally and to whatever situation we are in today. We all need to pray more fervently. We all have sins we need to turn from. We all need to seek God more diligently. We all need to live in humility. I believe all of us have something in our life that burdens us. Could be a friend, could be a relative, it could be a situation, could be financial, could be anything. But I think there's something hard in all of our lives. If so, then add fuel to the fire. Pray, do a U-turn on the sins in your life, seek God, live in humility, and then continue to push. Continue to pray until something happens. Watch, wait, and see God move. If the team would come up, and while they're coming up, Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would forgive us for our prayerlessness. I forgive us for the times that 
We've let other activities, other things get in the way for when you wanted to talk to us and when you wanted us to talk to you. Help us to be people of prayer. And Father, you want us to turn around. You want us to make that U-turn. In fact, Father, you will come running to us if you see us begin to turn around, just like the Father did with the prodigal son. So, Father, help us to make that U-turn in whatever areas of our life we need to. Lord, help us to seek you with all our hearts. As that father said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Help us to seek you. And, Father, help us to be humble. Help us to live lives of humility where you come first and we come last. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.